0: Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome. Uh, This event is one of an occasional series of talks put on jointly by the Society for Algerian Studies and the Middle East Centre of the London School of Economics. Um, My name is Bill Sinton. um, I'm from the Society for Algerian Studies. I'm standing in this evening for our regular chairman, uh, John King, who can't make it uh, today. Um, I am delighted now to introduce our uh, speaker this evening, Michael Willis. He is a great expert on Algeria. He is a member of the committee of the Society for Algerian Studies, first of all, um, and he is a fellow of St Anthony's College in Oxford, where he um, lectures. He teaches on modern Maghreb uh, politics. He did his he did his PhD on Algeria, and um, he. Um, has also written a book on the Islamist challenge in Algeria, and um, he will be um, talking for about 40 minutes, and afterwards I'll open the floor to questions from the audience. You should be aware that uh, this, um, this event is being recorded so we ask you to um, turn your phones off um, if you haven't already done so and if anybody wants to tweet about the event, uh, they can do so and the hashtag is LSE Algeria. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> I myself spent um, six years living in Algeria at different times. Um, firstly in the 1980s and later at the turn of the millennium. When I went back to Algeria after a long gap, the first thing that struck me was how reassuringly familiar everything was. Uh, And then the second thing was how utterly different so many other things were. Um, I'm sure if I went back again tomorrow... Um, I would be struck by the same mixture of continuity and change. Um, However vivid my own memories are of different periods in the country, um, they certainly fall well short of um, a full understanding of the modern country. So now we all look to Michael... Um, to draw together the strands and give us the big picture uh, of the modern history of Algeria. And I know that um, historians always say that the future is not their period, but it would be quite interesting (laughs) if Michael uh, could tell us something of his view Of the general direction of travel in Algeria. Um, That's about it so Michael you have the floor. Thank you
1: well thank thank you very much um, Bill for the introduction and I'm I'm very pleased um, to be here and I'd like to begin um, by thanking the Society for Algerian Studies um, for inviting me to speak to, tonight. I feel particularly gratified that mm-hmm. this is actually the uh, third time the society has invited me to speak. Uh, the first time was 20 years ago um, on the publication um, of my um, first book, um, which was based on my PhD thesis, The Islamist Challenge um, in Algeria, Political History. And then I was invited um, five years ago on the publication of my second book, um politics in Panama, Maghreb, algeria tunisia morocco from independence to the arab spring you will no doubt be mightily relieved but i'm not here to try and flog you a book uh, this evening um at least not yet uh, because i have i am currently um uh, writing another book focused once again on contemporary algeria one which is still a little way um from completion um what I would like to take the opportunity to do um, this evening, let's all, can everybody hear me? Okay, yes, good. The, is to discuss some of my thoughts and reflections on, on returning to write on uh, and study Algeria. Um, I followed and studied Algeria closely throughout the decade of the 1990s. Um, as Bill mentioned, my, my PhD and my first book focused on, on, on Algeria. And although I I did follow events there um, for the next decade and a half, um, I didn't follow it quite the same closely as I had in the 1990s. And then I returned in 2014 to observe the the country much more closely, following uh, my acceptance of an offer to write a book, an invitation by Hearst Publishers to write a book on Algeria. Um, And over the last three years, I have visited Algeria regularly, um, spending several months there particularly last year in two thousand and sixteen, so as what bill says is uh, I find uh, completely uh, uh, very uh, very apt that much has changed over the intervening period um, between the 19, late 1990s and uh, the last three three or four years um, but some things have not changed as bill has has already. Um, indicated and one thing that hasn't changed is the sort of of core question that I always had when I first started studying in Algeria and I, I found that I came back to it again was how come that why is such a fascinating and diverse country so neglected by researchers and scholars especially those outside the country Um, When I began studying Algeria at the the very beginning of the 1990s, I began studying in 1991 to be precise, uh, I was aware that I was plowing quite an initially quite a lonely furrow. furrow. But I assumed that it would be simply a matter of time before researchers were drawn into studying the country. Um, Now, this did not happen... Um, largely for the obvious reason that the gaining access to the country became nigh on impossible for foreign researchers um, during the 1990s, due to the civil conflict that erupted and developed there and racked the country uh, for most of the decade of the 1990s. Now, it's a subject I'll come on to and say something about a little bit later on. Now, this led researchers who had hitherto worked on Algeria to shift their geographic focus elsewhere. I, for example, began to focus much more on Morocco from the late 1990s, early 2000s onwards. Now, what is more surprising is that nearly 20 years on, and with civil peace more or less been um, fully restored to Algeria, is that researchers have not really returned to the country despite it probably being one of the very safest countries to visit in the region. Quite ironically, it was probably one of the least safe, is now one of the very safest countries in the region to visit. Now, even more striking, I think, is the absence um, uh, of of research on the country, especially on its um, recent history and politics, not only by foreigners, but also by Algerian researchers. There just hasn't been as much research over the recent history as you might expect. Now, Algeria's remarkable and turbulent experience from the 1980s through the 1990s, which saw mass protests, the introduction of a new uh, multi-party constitution, multi-party elections, an effective palace coup against the sitting president, uh, a prolonged and bloody civil conflict uh, costing tens of thousands of lives. This whole period remains fundamentally unchronicled um, uh, by both historians and political scientists alike. We have barely a handful of studies um, in any language of this remarkable period published either in Algeria or abroad. So this remarkable um, and very dramatic period, very little has been written on like, it. Very little in-depth studies have been done about what happened between October eighty eight throughout the, ni- the late 1990s. Despite Um, the drama and the the scale and the impact of what had happened. Um, Contrast this, for example, with the enormous number of studies that have been produced on Egypt's recent domestic uh, upheaval. Huge numbers of books, huge number of articles on it. This is despite the fact that, in my view, what is happening in in Egypt bears a lot of similarities to what happened in Algeria uh, 20, 30 years ago. But yet, what happened in Algeria has not really been recorded. As a result, our knowledge and understanding of this crucial period in Algeria's modern history remains very thin um, because it still is fundamentally unwritten. We don't really know much about it. It seems remarkable, for example, that we have no even even roughly agreed figure for how many people died in the violence of the 1990s. Figures that are regularly cited are 100,000, 150,000, 200,000, Cited by both political leaders, by academics, by journalists, by diplomats. And the difference between 100,000 people killed and 200,000 people, it's saying, well, we're not quite sure. So 100,000, we're not even closest to the nearest 50,000, which seems very strange. But we don't even have that, the variations. Similarly, we have no significant study of a period of political opening and the electoral competition, from 1989 to 1992, no study of a subsequent civil conflict, its effect on the population, its actors. No thoroughgoing study of the Islamic Salvation Front, or Front Islamic du Salut, FIS, as it was known, the FIS, the Islamist party that dominated multi-party elections in 1990 and 91, and whose victories prompted the palace coup against the sitting president, uh, President Shadli Ben-Jadid, uh, the cancellation of elections and ultimately the unleashing of the civil conflict. There doesn't, isn't really uh, a thoroughgoing study uh, of that party, despite its prominence. And again, this stands in stark contrast to the wealth of studies of most Islamist movements across the rest of the region. On the Brotherhood in Egypt, Nahda in Tunisia, you've got multiple studies. There's virtually nothing being written on Mathis in Algeria, despite how powerful it became. And the fact that it won election after election in 1990 to 91. Um, Now, these absences have consequence, I think, in explaining um, the lack of understanding there has been of Algeria, especially in in more recent years. Many outside observers have been perplexed, for example, by how unaffected Algeria seemed to be um, in the remarkable um, series of popular uprisings that shook the region, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt and Syria, uh, which saw... um, uh, but saw Algeria pretty well unaffected by these series of popular uprisings. Um, Despite Algeria sharing many of the same characteristics of an entrenched authoritarian government, um, high um, high levels of youth unemployment saw only very small-scale domestic protests, and people were confused by that. Um, Similarly, more recently, while young men from neighbouring countries, um, particularly Libya and Tunisia, have departed in significant numbers to join jihadi groups in uh, in Iraq, and especially Syria. Very few young Algerians have done so. Something quite remarkable um, in terms of the uh, impact. Now, these are very puzzling to outside observers, but my view is a better understanding of Algeria's more recent past would help answer these questions, not least through an appreciation of the fact that most Algerians feel their country has already passed through its own Arab Spring, in the 1980s and 1990s. Now, I will return a little bit later to discussing the subject of why studies specifically of Algeria's experiences of the last three decades have been so neglected. Um, But before doing that, I want to look at a broader and more long-standing reason for the absence of academic studies on, on contemporary Algeria. Now, many of you may have been puzzled by my assertion at the beginning that Algeria is a country that has been understudied since there really is quite a wealth of studies of its modern history. However, as will hopefully becoming clear, um, I refer to the lack of the history of the modern Algerian state since independence in 1962. There is, of course, no shortage of studies uh, of um, the territory that would become the state of Algeria before it became independent. Indeed, there is a striking abundance of studies of the country in the pre-independence period. Overwhelming of its period under French colonial rule, um, and especially of its struggle to end this rule in the 1950s and 1960s. In fact, I would argue that it is the sheer volume of research and writing done on the colonial period, but has contributed to the clear relative neglect of the period that followed. Now, on one level, you could say it's not entirely surprising that the colonial period has attracted more scholarly attention uh, than the post-colonial one, given the greater passage of time since then, and the involvement of a major influential state so, such as France, um, whose substantial scholarly community seeks to document its recent past, In one sense, it's, it's quite logical. However, these explanations carry less weight if you consider that scholarly output on the French colonial period in Algeria has actually increased noticeably, over recent years, in both France and in Algeria. If you go into a bookshop in, in Paris, or Algiers, or Oran, or Marseille, you will find a section on Algerian history. And in that, you'll find that 90% of the volumes in that section, Algerian history, will focus on the pre-independence period. And of those 90%, probably three-quarters will focus specifically on the liberation struggle of 1954 to 1962. So it's hugely dominated by the liberation struggle on Algerian history. Now, quite why there has been an increase in attention in France on colonial Algeria can be explained by a generational shift uh, that has allowed new, younger scholars to come to um, to address sensitive topics in new ways, and also by the desire by those involved in the period, especially its final traumatic years, to put their recollections on record. And I think a similar um, a similar um, pattern is working in Algeria. There's an explosion of memoirs of people who are involved in the liberation struggle, particularly as, they, uh, as that generation begins to pass. So in one sense, that makes sense. Um, and I think also within Algeria, it has to do with this, this increase in output on the colonial period, and especially the liberation struggle. It has to do with a desire not only to preserve memories of the colonial and, lib- and liberation period, but also to bolster and strengthen their presence in the national Algerian narrative, the official narrative. The significant divisions and divergences that Algeria experienced after the colonial period and the conflicts they produced has fed a desire to emphasize a historical period on where there remains near universal domestic consensus on the liberation struggle. This can be seen In the fact that the narrative produced by studies of the colonial period and the liberation war in Algeria specifically is almost exclusively heroic in character. Um, The story of the people who suffered, resisted and rose up against a brutal colonial power. There is virtually no critique or discussion of the divisions and failures of a national movement or indeed the violence it committed both against the French and other Algerians. It's, it's, It's a heroic narrative. Now, such patterns are reflected not just in books and research, but also more widely. Uh, for, for pretty well every single day in the, uh, in the, in the, in the calendar, there is an anniversary, an event or death of a, a martyr um, during the period 1954 to 62, which is explicitly marked with extensive articles in the press but also by political parties and associations. It's always marked, always discussed. Interesting, not just by the government, but also by the opposition press and political parties. They also um, um, always mark the occasions and always talk of the heroic narrative. Um, Now, I think continued attention within Algeria to the colonial period and particularly the liberation struggle is fundamentally understandable for all the obvious reasons, Uh, um, Given the enormous effect it had on Algeria, by far the longest and bloodiest struggle for independence in the whole period of decolonization that took place across Africa and Asia in the 1950s and 60s. Moreover, it should not be forgotten that the liberation struggle actually created the modern state of Algeria, which had not fundamentally existed beforehand. Algeria was effectively, therefore, born in the liberation struggle, so it is important. This has resulted in Algerian politics since 1962 being significantly shaped by the liberation struggle. However, saying the liberation struggle is crucial to an understanding of post-independence politics is not the same as saying you only need to know about the liberation struggle to understand modern Algerian politics. It should be noted that the vast majority of Algerians living in the country today have no meaningful memory of the French colonialism and the liberation struggle. Close to 90% of Algerians today were born after 1962. So there is a generational issue here. Now, beyond France and Algeria, especially surprising is the continued overwhelming focus on Algeria's colonial hi- history by scholars who are neither French nor Algerian. You can understand why perhaps there is continued interest in it in France and Algeria, but other non-Algerian scholars. Now, I think part of this is due to the fact that a lot of people came to study Algeria through an interest in French colonialism or through studying literature or the academic discipline of post-colonialism. I remember... Uh, when I first started studying Algeria in 1991, I was struck by the number of people who said to me in very similar phrases, they would say, I don't know much about Algeria, but I do, need to, but I do know that you need to read Albert Camus and Franz Fanon. I don't, need, I don't know much about Algeria, but I do know you need to read Albert Camus and Franz Fanon. So I thought, okay, I duly went away and I read La Peste and L'étranger and bits of Franz Fanon. And I found interesting and profound ideas in both men's work. But what confused me was that as I began to work on Algeria and talk to Algerians, um, I really didn't come across these two men's names very much. Um, All their ideas. Um, Algerians themselves made virtually no reference to either. And I had no cause to refer to Camus or Fanon in my research, despite having been initially told by so many people that they would constitute the cornerstone of, of, of my research and work. Now, I think this absence is perhaps best explained by the fact that both Fanon and Camus died even before Algeria achieved independence. And both connection in Algeria could be described as, in some respects, rather indirect. Fanon was born in Martinique in the Caribbean, and Camus was the son of European settlers in Algeria. Yet Camus and Fanon still seem to exercise a strong hold on our understanding of Algeria, as indeed does the whole period of French colonialism, as a near-exclusive lens through which to understand modern Algerian history. Now, this has led me to remember, I was a a student here um, in the International History Department in, in the late 80s here, And I remember um, coming across when we were studying um, decolonization, I came across a very interesting um, phrase and judgment about um, Vietnam. And the expression, what it said was, Vietnam should become known as a country in Southeast Asia rather than a period in U.S. history. And I think certainly the same could be a try to Algeria. I think Algeria should become known as a country in North Africa rather than just a period in French history. Now, moving away from the um, imbalance created in the study of Algerian history through excessive focus on the colonial period, I think there are often more tangible reasons why Algerian history since independence has received so little attention. Algeria did, it is fair to say, receive a good share of attention during its first decade after independence as researchers sought to see how this brave new uh, country that had wrested control from the French uh, would develop. Many excellent and detailed studies were written d- during this time, particularly during the 1960s. Interest waned in the 1970s and 80s um, as the country developed a, sta- uh, a fairly stable and more austere reputation with fewer of the visible upheavals and intrigues of neighboring countries. Now, the unravelling of this reputation um, in the latter part of the 1980s occurred as the country experienced a mounting financial crisis precipitated by the collapse in the international oil price, which the Algerian economy had largely depended on for over a decade and produced a political crisis following the widespread unrest that shook the country in the opening week of October 1988. Now, this unrest led, for a variety of reasons, to an unprecedented political opening with a new constitution in 1989, which saw the party political monopoly of a revolutionary FLN um, ended and the legalisation of a plethora of other political parties that went on to compete in both local and national elections. Now, the apparently dizzyingly fast turn of events caught most observers off guard. They were used to seeing Algeria as a very austere, stable, rather boring, rather impenetrable state. And then suddenly this exploded, a one-party socialist regime. Now, initial attempts to explain the seeming ending of FLN rule were made through analogies to the transformations that began to take place in the communist regimes in Eastern Europe. The Berlin Wall came, fell ten months after the new Algerian constitution was, was released. Um, however, these analogies came unstuck. There were quite a lot of interesting things. said, This is all about the fall of communism. However, these came unstuck when it became clear that the new challenging movement to the state was not a coalition of liberals and pro-democracy activists as in Eastern Europe, but a powerful Islamist movement. This produced a shock in itself, since this, the rise of this movement seemed to be at odds with Algeria's leftist history. Particularly taken aback with the French, including most academic researchers, whose extensive links in the country were with the country's old francophone elite and who were both blindsided and perplexed by a movement that emerged from a social and intellectual milieu with which they had few connections and thus no understanding. A lot of academics were still talking to members of a communist party and the rest of it, and they said, well, who are these guys with beards and where have they come from? We we don't seem to understand them. We've never met these people. What, What relevance do they have to what we've been studying? Now the new emerging reality of Algeria began to attract more thoughtful attention by the turn of a decade but was soon curtailed by the gradual growth in violence within the country following the forced ending of electoral process in January 1992. The issuing of a warning by some of the Islamist armed groups in the autumn of 1993 that they would target all foreigners who remained inside Algeria after December led to an inevitable exodus of foreigners from the country, including those researchers who were studying Algeria's startlingly new political um, dynamics. Now, the departure and the increasing steady increase in violence and bloodshed uh, ushered in this, a new period, I think, of, of both Algerian history and politics, and had profound effects, of course, on how the country was studied. The absence of foreign reporters and researchers led to an unavoidable reliance on information gathered and produced by Algerians themselves. Now, in the early years of a conflict, this led to the dominance of the official narrative of events produced by the Algerian authorities, which portrayed an embattled fundamentally secular regime assaulted by violent extremist islamists growing reports of the increasingly bloody and indiscriminate violence of many of the armed groups notably the famous armed islamic group or gia gia which was responsible for threats against foreigners and um, which began to, to target writers and intellectuals, helped remove ma- ma- um, remaining reservations many outside Algeria had about the interruption of the electoral process in 1992. However, by the mid-1990s, um, the dominance of the official narrative of a brave secular regime against a bloodthirsty Islamist insurrection came to be increasingly challenged by other accounts emerging from Algeria and other Algerians. These accounts were critical of the role played by the state, particularly the security and intelligence services, in combating the armed Islamist groups, with reports of brutality, disappearances, deaths in custody, and collective punishments and killings. Some went even further and alleged that the intelligence services had infiltrated the armed groups and had begun to manipulate them, pushing them into committing atrocities and extreme acts of violence to undermine support for the armed groups and Islamism more generally, both domestically and abroad. There was even the accusation that some of the armed groups, notably the GIA, which had been responsible for most of the violence and most of the threats, were actually fully set up and run by the intelligence services of the Algerian state, known as the DRS or as it used to be called, Security Militaire. But it was basically the whole thing was set up and run by the Algerian intelligence services. Now, many of these accusations perhaps inevitably came from Algerian Islamists, particularly those who had fled to exile abroad and claimed they were reporting what their sources uh, inside Algeria were telling them. London became a particular source of such stories as a number of exiled Algerian Islamists based themselves here, part of a phenomenon of the 1990s that became known rather pejoratively and I think rather inaccurately as Londonistan where Islamists of all stripes base themselves here. And in fact, a major part of the debate and discussion about this occurred at meetings of the Society of Algerian Studies. Uh, Twenty years ago, the, the room would look very, very different. We used to hold it at SOAS in those days. But you had quite a, a wide cross-section of people here and who would have quite a, A lively debate. It used to be a friend of mine, Algerian friend of mine used to call it the powder keg because you had such a range of people from radical Islamists through to people working close to the regime and and, uh, uh, secular writers and uh, exiles. Now, significantly, it was not only Islamists that criticised the role played by the the Algerian regime in the violence. Other Algerian groups did, though, too, particularly prominent in this regard was the Socialist Front Forces Front Party, the FFS. Uh, its leader Hussein Ait Ahmed been a regular visitor to London, arguing that the violence of the conflict had been produced by the original sin of the cancellation of the elections of nineteen ninety two. Signatories of a nineteen ninety five uh, Rome Accord, which included a wide cross section of parties and individuals calling for dialogue and the restarting of the electoral process also came here to London. London became a mega pole, particularly for people from the opposition who were critical of what was happening, what the regime was doing in Algeria. Now, the analysis of the situation inside Algeria came to be very influenced and widely accepted by most of the admittedly small circle of academics, researchers and analysts who followed Algeria closely at this time. There was a a switch in being highly critical, and accepting particularly the FFS and Ahmed were very influential in in, in suggesting that the real problem was the regime rather than uh, those fighting against it. Um, Individual members of the Algerian army, police and intelligence service who had fled the country also began to support accusations of official complicity in the violence. Much of this criticism fed into an expanding debate, On Algerian state responsibility for the violence, we've reached a new height with a series of brutal and still fundamentally unexplained massacres of civilians that occurred across central and western Algeria in the period between 1996 and 1998. Many people within the Algerian regime and amongst the large parts of the Algerian population that had supported it during the violence um, were shocked and outraged. That they were that what they continued to maintain was a struggle of the government and a people against violent extremists was being portrayed in this way. It created a lot of resentment. There was particular resentment, um, but much of this discourse of what became known in French as "qui to qui" who is killing who, the question about who is responsible for violence. Is it Islamists killing, um, uh, uh, um, uh, ordinary people? Is it the government behind it? Who is actually killing who? Um, particularly in France, was being articulated and supported abroad, leading to a sentiment of betrayal and a reinforcement of the always strong Algerian resistance to foreign interference in internal Algerian affairs that dated back to the nationalist movement. This created official suspicion of foreigners wanting to visit or research in Algeria, believing they simply wished to find ammunition to further criticise the country and its leadership. The net effect of the violence... The contrasting accounts of who was responsible for extreme violence and suspicion in official and other circles of of, um, outside interest in Algeria contributed to becoming extremely difficult to find out and understand what exactly was going on in Algeria. Now, in the absence of reliable information about events inside the country, discussion about Algeria outside fell prey to two tendencies – Um, the first was the conspiracy theory and the second is what I call the belief in privileged and exclusive knowledge. Now, the most widespread conspiracy theory that developed in the absence of, 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 of of information was that of the omnipresence and omnipotence of the Algerian intelligence services, the DRS. Stories of the DRS's involvement in and even creation and direction of the Islamist groups, such as the GIA, fed a developing myth that the organisation ran and manipulated everything in Algeria, and, that, and frequently much beyond Algeria's borders too. The whole civil conflict was believed in some quarters to be an elaborate diversionary tactic to enable senior figures in both the regime and the DRS to hold on to power and plunder Algeria's extensive oil and gas wealth. Difficulties of access um, to Algeria also led to a premium being placed on reliable information on Algeria, leading to the rise in individuals claiming that the channels of information they had in Algeria were not just more valuable, but were somehow exclusively insightful. A regular comment that was heard in that period was, I have contacts in high places in Algeria And I can tell you what's really going on in Algeria. It's something you heard regularly a lot of people say. There were even those people who would say, I know exactly what is happening in Algeria, but it's so secret I can't tell anyone. (laughs) So it became this whole thing that there's a secret, there's some secret thing that only certain people have access to. Um, The reality was, of course, these, these accounts differed massively with each other. Now, it goes without saying that neither DRS conspiracy theories nor claims to exclusive understanding and insights help further genuine research in understanding of Algeria. It it was not helpful to try to find out what was going on. What is noticeable is that both tendencies are still alive and well nearly 20 years on from the end of the civil conflict, (coughs) particularly outside Algeria. We see this in the fact that many politically active Algerians, particularly outside Algeria, will accuse most other Politically active Algerians have been DRS agents. Um, I've, I've, I've got used over the ideas to um, talking to some an Algerian about another Algerian. He'll say, "We you know, he's a DRS agent. He's with a DRS. Okay, and I used to think that. And I talked to the other guy and said, oh, I was speaking to so-and-so. Why are you speaking to him? He's DRS. <laughs> And then everybody thought everybody else was DRS. So I assume there must be a lot of DRS people here if you belong to that tendency. Maybe even I'm a DRS agent. I've been accused of it several times. So it, it, it creates basically this paranoia that everybody was working for this, um, this completely omnipresent and omnipotent um, security services. Um, stories of the DRS's involvement in and, in and even creation and director of the SMS groups such as the G... Um, Sorry, the, yes. Also, I think it, belief in the DRS, um, which in recent years has supposedly been officially restructured, uh, renamed, and had its long-term director, Mohamed Tawfiq Medien, removed, is somehow still fully dominant. And I regularly hear that this, this, this demotion and restructuring of the DRS is actually um, a, a, a fake. Um, It's faked its own demise, and it's actually still running everything, but it's faked itself the way it's reorganized. So this gives you a flavor of a sort of continuation. Also, I see in the speculation on the state of health of President Abdelaziz Bouteflika and his likely successes in office. As many of you know, he is very unwell and has been very unwell and appears very infrequently in public. I regularly have people telling me the apparent inside and exclusive truth uh, on how unwell he is and who his successor is. Now, the fact that these inside truths all contradict each other suggests that people don't necessarily have these things. So these, these, these again, we have this problem of understanding. That's outside Algeria. I, I think we should acknowledge some of the problems that, um, that, re- that research and discussion on recent Algeria um, inside Algeria, particularly notably of the 1990s, has some very real constraints. Chief amongst these within Algeria has been the legal constraints put on uh, on this discussion contained in Chapter 6 of the 2005 Charter on Peace and National Reconciliation, which sought to draw a line under the conflict of the 1990s. Uh, This offered legal protection to the forces of the state against accusations or legal pursuit for any crimes they may have committed during the struggle against the armed groups. It criminalised any complaint or denunciation, of those forces and prescribed fines and even imprisonment for anyone who, and I quote, instrumentalizes the wounds of the national tragedy to undermine the institutions of the state, weaken the state, damage the honor of those who have served it, or tarnish the image of Algeria internationally. So it was basically, you were, it was criminalized discussion of the 1990s if it was any criticism of the role of the state. Now, this clearly goes a long way to explain the lack of research and frank discussion of the 1990s in contemporary Algeria. Indeed, one is struck by the hegemony uh, that the official discourse on the 1990s exercises in Algeria today. The period is almost universally described by both officials and ordinary Algerians as the time of terrorism. The time of terrorism is usually the period of terrorism is how you describe the 1990s is described by pretty well everybody. This supports the official narrative of the 1990s that the conflict was the one that saw both the regime and the wider Algerian population attacked by violent Islamists. The period is discussed often in in a curiously detached way, as if it was some natural tragedy that befell Algeria like a hurricane or an earthquake, in which Algerians had no hand and were simply the victims. Indeed, the conflict is fundamentally portrayed as something that originated aboard and was imported into Algeria. It came from either Iran or Saudi Arabia um, or Afghanistan. That's regularly. This was something that came into Algeria from outside. Now, such a consensus, I think, has strong similarities to the consensus on the liberation struggle. That of the heroic Algerian people fighting a great, powerful evil emanating from abroad. Now, such is the spread of this apparent consensus that one Western diplomat in Algeria has made the startling statement to me that during his entire time in Algeria, he had never met a single Algerian who didn't think the interruption and ending of the electoral process in 1992 had not been a thoroughly good thing. He'd never met anybody who didn't think what happened in 1992 was a good thing. Um... Now, yet this consensus over what happened, um, over the essentially foreign nature of a conflict, ignores the reality that tens of thousands of Algerians joined the armed groups that fought against the regime in the 1990s. And before that, three million Algerians voted for the feast, the Islamist Party, in legislative elections in 1991, and five million Algerians voted for the party in local elections in 1990. Now, when I ask ordinary Algerians today in Algeria, where are these people? Where are the people in the armed groups? Where are the people who voted for feasts? <coughs> Regular answers you get are dead, in prison, or with some venom with you guys in London, um, which you often get. Uh, yet the reality must be that the vast majority of those who fought in the armed groups and voted for the feast must be still alive and living in Algeria today. Indeed, when one gets to know people better, and especially in private, a slightly more varied and nuanced discussion uh, emerges. There is, it has to be said, genuine confusion about the source of the violence in the 1990s. But also little asides about current friends and neighbours who used to be Islamists. You often hear you get talking to people and you say, oh, you know so-and-so, you know the guy from so-and-so, he's a... You know, the writer or the theatre critic or whatever. You know, back in the day, he used to have a big beard and kameez and w- w- wave the Koran, wandering, wandering around to do You know, he doesn't do that now. He's now a Marxist or he's now uh, an ca- uh, um, ca- uh, Ambazir activist. But in those days, he used to do it. And a surprising number of people have passed like that. And people say, well, you know, when back in the day, I, I went through a rather strange period and I used to go and do that, but don't do that now. So they, do, they are there in society. Now, the conflict is therefore present, but somehow buried in Algeria today. Now, one of, the aims I am um, one of the aims of the book I am currently writing is to try to understand how the period of both the late 1980s and the 1990s has affected Algeria today. How has this period of dramatic change and violent upheaval been processed by society? This absence of real public discussion inside Algeria about what happened in the 1990s has had certain repercussions on study of Algeria from abroad. To begin with, it has only fed the phenomena of conspiracy theories and claims of exclusive knowledge I referred to earlier. It has also perhaps led to academics and analysts falling back on earlier periods in Algerian history to explain what has happened more recently, most particularly the War of Liberation. But you can understand the 1990s through looking at the War of Liberation. There are clear parallels between the liberation struggle of the 1950s and the 1960s and and the civil conflict of the 1990s, but there has emerged a tendency to see see the latter as somehow a natural extension of the former. Uh, now, yet such an approach ignores the specifics of, of what happened in the 1980s and 1990s, particularly the fact that the mainly youthful Algerians who demonstrated and rioted in October 1988, voted the feast in 1990 and 91, and joined the armed groups, were born after the end of Algeria's liberation struggle, and have no meaningful memory of it. Excessive parallels between the 1950s and the 1990s have also fed the experience of the emergence of what I call the blood-soaked narrative of Algerian history, in which violence and bloodshed run through Algerian population history, but it's just a whole history of bloodshed of Algerians killing each other and being killed by other people. It's just this one bloody, horrible history. It's what James... James, McDougal, the historian and colleague at Oxford, says the war and fury uh, and, um, um, that m- a- outsiders so often see as solely constitutive of Algerian history. Now, beyond the extremely dubious implications of characterising a whole population steeped in violence and blood, such a theory ignores the fact that Algeria has been remarkably peaceful and conflict-free for most of its post-colonial history, um, which I think is important to note. And if I want to read, and I'll I'll conclude now uh, with my conclusions, but I think, indeed, my time in Algeria over the last three years has made me think that perhaps those of us who studied and researched Algeria in the 1990s are perhaps as guilty as those who studied the colonial period and liberation war of over-projecting their own period of study onto Algeria today. Nearly two decades have passed since the worst of the violence of the civil conflict ended, And I think Algeria has manifestly changed in between time. Although certain aspects of politics and society uh, and the economy remain very similar, other aspects have changed quite notably, going back to Bill's opening observation. I therefore believe Algeria today needs to be studied in a new light and without the determining assumptions of earlier periods, such as the colonial period, the liberation war, and the civil conflict of the 1990s. For Algeria is a fascinating and diverse country, not just in its own right, but also offers really valuable lessons and insights to the surrounding region and beyond. The widespread Algerian claim that Algeria experienced its own Arab Spring two decades before the rest of the Arab world is not just a piece of glib exceptionalism, in my view, but a substantial validity and merits explanation, not least for the lessons it can potentially teach the rest of the region still reeling from the events of 2011. The book I'm currently working on is trying to make sense of and explain the Algeria that has emerged in the wake of the civil conflict. But I hope that a new generation of scholars will come to look at Algeria totally unencumbered by the preconceptions and prevailing assumptions of the past. I'm delighted to say that these scholars and scholarship is beginning to emerge. Um, Outside Algeria, we have Vishsak Thievel. And, and Ricardo Fabiani, who's, who was who here tonight, um, in terms of working on really, really impressive, really insightful views of what is happening in Algeria. But perhaps I'm most impressed by what is actually happening inside Algeria. Um, my trips to Algeria, I've been impressed by the work done by young scholars in working in Algerian universities and at think tanks and research centers. I think particularly of KRASK in Oran and CRIAD in Algiers. And I think the careful and often low-profile research being done there offers insights to what is happening in today's Algeria, which will hopefully develop a new understanding both inside and outside Algeria of the country. In this way, it could help liberate the country from the oppression of being understood exclusively through its past experiences. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Um, Thank you, thank you Michael that was a fascinating uh, analysis, I learnt a lot I'm sure the audience uh, did or maybe the audience wants to dispute some <laughs> of your um, conclusions they'll now have the opportunity because uh, we'll have now half an hour or so of questions um, please may I ask you uh, to to ask one brief question so that Other people get a chance as well. And uh, would you please um, identify yourself when you ask a question and wait for the microphone, which Sandra at the back there will bring to you, um, so that everybody can hear the questions. Um, Right. Do I have a volunteer? Would anyone like to ask a question of Michael? I see one at the back. Yeah. Hi, hey, Michael. Hi, um, Michael. Is, can anyone hear me? Um, that was a great uh, uh, lecture, Michael. Thank you very much. Um, my question is: um, Did the Islamists lose the war? Uh, but are they winning the peace now?
1: Do you want me to take that straight away, or I have Yeah. Um,
0: I think. To, yeah. That, that sounds like a good
1: substantial. Thank you, Michael. Um, I think that's a uh, that's a very interesting interesting question. I think the the interesting part about about the Islamist movement in Algeria was at its height in, say, 1991. It was probably the power, most powerful Islamist movement anywhere in the Middle East. It was taking over half of votes for elections. It could pour hundreds of thousands of people onto the streets. It was dominant, but it doesn't get there. Firstly, I think, because obviously it is stopped, the electoral route to power is, is stopped by the, um, uh, the regime. And then it, when the civil conflict starts, it only persuades a very, very, very small percentage of the people, just into the tens of thousands of people, to um, start the, um, uh, an armed insurrection. Now, I can go into details about why I think the armed insurrection failed. But the question, and I think this is one of the most interesting questions in Algeria today, is what has become of the Islamist movement? You have political, the thesis was banned and broken up, and I think is now uh, really finished. People have very little memory of it now. But for ages it was thought it could come back again. You, have, you do have an, an Islamist political party, you have Islamist political parties in Algeria, but you have about six or seven of them, and they keep splitting up and breaking off. Um, and in elections, not that necessary, elections are always a very accurate indicator of, uh, of support, but they don't seem to be able to garner much political, uh, much political support. Um, there also seems to be, and this is slightly anecdotal, and I apologise for that, an antipathy amongst large sections of the Algerian population towards Islamism as having brought the problems of the 1990s. That's not universal, um, which is quite unusual. I think a sort of a popular antipathy in a lot of levels that you wouldn't necessarily get in other countries. There is, and this is I think a a phenomenon across the region, is there is at the same time the beginnings of um, what you could call a growth in signs of popular piety in terms of dress and behaviour that would normally be associated with Islamism, but don't seem to have a political dimension as yet. And there's some discussion about whether the experience of the 1990s actually destroyed any appeal of any political dimension, where there was signs of growth in signs of religious piety. It is about personal expressions of faith, personal expressions of of spirituality and of community, but don't really want to have a political um, uh, uh, dimension. There are people who think that it's only a matter of time that these expressions of piety develop a political dimension, I'm not so sure that really has what the experience of the 1990s completely discredited the political path for what could be broadly termed as an Islamist movement. There's a growth in a quietist um, Salafi movement, but again, that that is more traditional Salafi and not having a political dimension. And people, particularly amongst the more secular sections of society, are concerned by that. (coughs) But myself, I'm not sure. So there is elements of where society is becoming more religious in parts, but whether this would equate to anything more political, which I think is behind your question, Michael, I'm, I, I'm not sure. And I, I genuinely think that's one of the most fascinating aspects of, of that. It, it doesn't look like other countries around it, where you have a rising Islamist movement that is often politicized, but you have a radical, extremist, violent fringe um, amongst the youth. I mean, interesting enough, if you look at the people, the very few people who are arrested for um, belonging to jih- jihadi groups um, in Algeria. They tend to be guys in their 40s and 50s. They just not an appeal to younger people, which is quite an unusual phenomenon. And I think that says, that says something about how society views uh, and the, also the experience of the state in dealing with this politicization. A very long-winded, just like my lecture answer, Michael, but I hope that uh, <laughs> <tells>
0: <laughs> Anyone else? Gentleman there. Hi, my name is...
2: Hi, my name is Luis, and my question is, after independence, Algeria was seen as a leader on decolonial movements and decolonial thought, so for example, they hosted the Black Panthers party in the 1970s, they trained the PLO and so on, so my question is, what was the impact of this in Algerian society, if any, today?
1: My short answer is that I, I, I'm, I, I'm not that familiar. It's not a period I've studied in detail myself. I have to. It's certainly created an atmosphere within the Argentine population of a pride in their revolutionary origins. But you've got to, that where you're, particularly the period you're talking about is the mid-late 60s, isn't it? Mid, mid-60s. Um, I think the generational point that I made really kicks in. You've got to look at the demographic profile that really there are fewer and fewer people. The, the, the Al- Algeria um, had a population at independence of probably about 9 million. Today it has a population of 41, 42 million. That just in itself tells you about the memory of the sort of heroic period of the 60s and 70s. It's still alive in certain parties, but the vast majority of Algerians have no memory of it. Um, I think it lives on in parts of the foreign ministry. The foreign ministry still have parts and memories of that. And I think in some parts of the intellectual left in Algeria, but again, they're increasingly small and marginalized. Um, so it lingers there, but I suspect not ver- very much. I don't know if you'd agree with that. I don't know. I don't know
0: much. <laughs> One more over here.
2: Um, Ricardo Fabiani from Eurasia Group. Um, my question is about the former FIS voters that you mentioned. That the anecdote was very interesting because it shows how some of these voters basically changed and they tried to blend in society and to forget about their past. But I wonder how many of these former FIS voters are dormant voters, or can we can can we consider them as repented uh, voters, or uh, they have a, some of them might have a tacit sort of understanding. Uh, that's, you know, they don't deal with politics, but they are still, you know, in their hearts, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, FIS supporters. So th- I think this is a pretty interesting point, right? Because you said 5 million people voted for the FIS in local elections in the in 90s. In the latest election, the FLN only got little more than a million votes. So I wonder how, you know, these former FIS voters have repositioned themselves. If there is more, you know, the, the, that anecdote you mentioned uh, in this story?
1: It's very difficult to tell for all the obvious reasons I've, I, I, I've said. I've, and, and this is why I think it would be really good when we do get a chance to do research on this, because I find myself falling back on anecdotes and trying to talk with other people. And again, the patterns seem to be mixed. These people, have, the, the, your feast vote, of the last person, the last opportunity you had to vote for the feast was 26 years ago. So if you were 18 at the time, that means you're the, the, the youngest feast voter is going to be, is my maths correct, is 44. So these are people in their 40s, 50s, 60s. So, and it changes things. And I, a comment I used to get was, because I used to ask people and I mean, you get to know them a little bit, and he said, well, I used to be involved, but you realise that's not the way to do things. We, we found a, a very, very insightful comment. It was, a, it was an ordinary Algerian who said to me, he said, yes, well, you see, we used to believe, I used to believe you change things by going out on the street and demonstrating, and protesting, and now we realise that doesn't work in Algeria. We found other ways. And he made an expression like that. We found other ways of getting there. There may have been a retreat into the personal rather than the political. Certainly the former political um, um, landscape is largely de- discredited in the ideas of um, uh, Algerian, uh, ordinary Algerians. Political parties are regarded as corrupt and weak and pointless. The regime is regarded as remote from people, and people have often disengaged. Um, so there's been a depoliticization. In terms of the effect of religion, um, As I said, I think where some have have moved away, I think it has been a development of a more pious. I had a student who did some research in some of the feast strongholds in the mid-2000s looking to see what had happened. And what she found that there had been a growth in religious sentiment, but as I mentioned earlier, there had been a rejection of the political and um, extremist element. People said, well, the feasts were good because they reintroduced us to our religion. The old the regime of Boumediene didn't really tell us about our religion. We've now got that. It went a bit crazy with these crazy guys in the 90s, but we have our religion, and it now is a foundation of what we do. Whether that will re- result in votes or whether it's regarded as a whole process, I don't know. I suspect that it has broken up significantly. And a lot of the people, who, I, I, several people I, I speak to said, you know, I did participate in the, in the marches, I did used to think the feast, I did vote for the feast, and then I realised this was, this was going nowhere. Um, and you know, it wasn't where I you know, wanted to go. Thank you.
3: Um, I do think if there is an election today, the feast will, will win. Mm-hmm. I think Ali Bilhaj is still very popular. People think that he's the only one who's kept mm-hmm. his principles. And I, I'm just what, what people say. Anyway, I've done my PhD on Algeria on the 90s from a gender perspective here in the UK. Um, uh, I had seven different supervisors and I've been through three different universities. Uh, to say that there is no scholarship, there was no scholarship, there was no understanding and there was no will to work on it's a good proposal <coughs> just just do something from France, just do something about France, just go to collect your your data in France that I was facing this. And now one year after I finished I'm still struggling with where to publish my my PhD. So this is to confirm what you're saying. But I'm wondering if uh, the only reason is because we just want to focus on post-colonial, or it's just because we don't want this narrative to be known. Uh, although I, I mean, my work is really on gender, on women, on highly-skilled women who left Algeria during the '90s. During that, um, so that, that my, my my question is, like, is there any chance we can carry on working on the '90s in the UK or? would be scholarship? You said there's scholarship, scholarship for the
1: 90s or...? For I would hope so and I'd, I'd, I'd really like to see your research and hopefully it gets published because it's exactly the sort of thing that is needed. The, what the impact on the population in the 90s, we haven't done study, particularly the, the large numbers of Algerians who left, so it sounds fascinating. I think it's di- people find it difficult to put Algeria in a niche. Yeah. Is it Middle East? Is it Africa? Yeah. Is it French? It's sort of none of those things and where it sort of falls between the cracks, isn't it? Which is something I used to get all the time. So I'd say simply, and I'm glad that you sort of, I wasn't the only one finding it really difficult. <laughs> yeah. I used to get very funny looks when I studied Algeria. Why are you doing that? And uh, But it's so important to study if you look at the lesson. So please do do publish it. It would be nice. I'd, li- I'd like to hear more about what, what you have to say. So, yeah. <laughs> but I hope it's difficult for the reason to be said to carry on doing research, particularly in Algeria at the moment for reasons I said. Yeah.
4: Hi. <coughs> Hi, my name is Buket, and I would like to ask you about this, but um, I'm going to have to create the foundation of my question with regards to Turkey, because I'm Turkish and I don't know much about Algeria specifically. So in Turkey, Islamists, when you look at their economic policies, it will be m- mainly just Western neoliberal economics. They will not have like, any idea of Islamifying the code of labor or trade. But when you look at social issues, civil issues, then it's Islamic politics. So maybe I was thinking in Algeria, you don't see Islamism as politicized because Islamists or those who would feel like they're Islamists in the 90s do not feel uh, threatened by a secularizing state. So they don't have to create a reactionary politics against it. Maybe they feel that actually Islamified society is the norm today in Algeria, so for them, like the norm has become Islamified, the society has become more Islamified, so they don't have to put that upfront in their politics. And also if you look at Turkey and um, with regards to people who go to join ISIS, it will not be um, like staunch political Islamists, because they, usually they have a really strong sense of community and very strong ties to their families. And they go on to do academical studies and they have found that, you know, changing the education system is much more effective in changing people's perceptions of how they should lead their lives rather than taking a gun and going to Syria and not being sure whether you'll come back. So how much of the um, absence, I should say, of Islamists in the Algerian political state do you think is actually because they think they have won in a social sense? That people, have, people do live in, a, live in a pious way that Islamists would approve of, so they don't actually need political activism in that sense anymore.
1: That may be the case as the reasons that I mentioned. The other thing to mention, compared to most other societies, the Algerian movement has pretty well always been, apart from when the feast in existence, highly fragmented and fractured. You haven't got one big movement. You haven't got a big brotherhood movement. There's a brotherhood movement in Algeria, but it's only part of a, of, a, of a picture. You haven't got a very large um, Salafi movement. It, it, it's quite local and it's quite unstructured, so you haven't got a feeling of this is what we're doing. It seems to have been personalised to a certain extent um so whether there's a sense of we've won it's like this is what I've decided to do a sort of personal choice i mean i think the whole issue of islamism when it becomes a lifestyle choice develops a very interesting dynamic is it about you know people say well i want to the um some people explain the, the 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 um the growth in the middle classes One one journalist who observes these things quite quickly was was explained to me the growth in forms of of certain forms of dress that would be seen as more pious um, is amongst middle class Algerians is partly to the influence of Gulf, um, Gulf channels. You can be, you can wear the latest fashion, and you can you can be a consumerist, but you can also be pious as well. And this actually feeds into all sorts of things. So I think it is a sort of a personalization rather than a movement that has this big long-term strategy. I think the visions of... This, an, an interesting aspect of Algeria is, and I think this is something that will come into play, is there seems to be an exhaustion amongst most Algerians of grand plans and grand promises of revolution. Um, you often get people saying, well look, we tried, to demo- we, tried to, we tried to have this Islamic revolution in Algeria, it didn't work and we ended up much in a much worse situation. In 88 to 92, we tried to have a democratic revolution and it just ended up in violence and problems. We tried to create a wonderful socialist state and we ended up poor and with loads of corrupt government officials. You even have people say, we have this wonderful revolution against the French and we ended up poorer and in a more, uh, almost more oppressive state. So some people say, you know, big plans, big revolutions, taking control of the state, eh, not ready for me. I'll get on with my little bit and I'll do what I can. That seems to be a sense. I and mean, this is all quite anecdotal. But that's, I think, where. And then I think the Islamism feeds into that a bit.
3: Thank
0: you. I knew they it. Uh, the, the lady, yes, that lady there. And two more soon, yes.
5: Thank you. Can you hear me? Um, so my name is Yasmin. I am actually Algerian. And uh, don't worry, I'm not DRS or anything like that, so... I'm, I'm
1: DRS, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> all
5: right, so I, uh, first of all, I allow myself to, to disagree with the lady who uh, spoke earlier, saying that uh, if there is another election, um, the face will win. Because even though uh, Ali Hajj is quite popular, uh, in the Algerian popular belief, we still have the association of what ever happened like that bloody period and the Islamic movement. So whatever happens, I don't believe that it it will win again. Um, Now, my question is, uh, I am a researcher in the Algerian literature. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but in every piece of Algerian francophone literature, there is a reference to French colonialism even in the very recent works, like, for example, Dawood and Yasmina Khadran, anything like that. So, and we don't find that in the other Maghreb's literature, like Tunisian and Moroccan, uh, even though we had our independence roughly in the same period. So they had it in the 50s, we had it in the 60s. So how would you explain this... um, the re- recurrence of this colonialism in the Algerian literary production, and what is hindering the passage from the colonial to the post-colonial? Thank you.
1: I think, I, I think, when it comes to the colonial period, even though I've sort of said I, 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 I like you, have a sort of slight problem with the fact that, but that, that, the colonial period is so dominant. You've got to bear in mind that that that, that um, France was in, in Algeria for one hundred and thirty years, compared to Morocco, what, forty-four years. Tunisia, 70, 80 years, and actually was a formal department It was integrated into France. So, and if you travel in Algeria, Alger, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria is, visit, it, on all levels, is more French in certain ways, and that's in, uh, unavoidable. That's just a function of, of, of history. Um, but I think the way it shaped the post-independence, and I think I, I think this, I don't know if you'd agree with me, my, my idea, that in one respect... Because everything has become been so divided in Algeria since independence, it's the one thing that every Algerian agrees on. You occasionally come across a people who say, well, actually, if the French has still been here, things would be much better. That's pretty. Nobody says that publicly. You get a few people who say that privately. But it's like the one thing that everybody can agree on. Every Islamist, nationalists, uh, Amazigh activists all agree that that the, the colonialism was, the, was a bad thing in the French presence. But it's so steeped in, in the culture in so many ways. And also you've got to bear in mind how many Algerians live in, live in France today and travel backwards and forwards, it's an enormous number. So I think that has that influence. It, it's going to be present in the, in the literature. But I do see an emergence of, of, of really good trends. I'm not a, a literature expert, but I, really re- I mentioned Albert Camus, and I like what Alge- Albert Camus does, but I think a lot of what he writes isn't really about Algeria. And if anybody, everybody reads L'Etranger, but I, I read earlier this year Kamal Daoud's sort of uh, response. The, I think it's in English it's the Massot investigation or uh, Massot contre enquête or something, isn't it? I would recommend everybody who's read Camus to read Kamal Daoud's. I think it's a much better book, but it's a brilliant book, and it really pushes back against. This understanding of the colonial Algeria, um, I think, is an excellent book. Uh, just on the, quickly on the question of Ali Belhaj, I have to say I'd probably agree with you. Ali Belhaj is a, regarded as a rather quirky individual, sort of like the local mad guy who wanders around and makes speeches, but doesn't have much following today in Algeria. Although the Algerian authorities, the only person, but al, um, the Algerian authorities are not keen that anybody outside meets still. So, who
0: else? The gentleman there, yes.
6: Uh, my name is Amjad. I'm a public policy student at Kings. Um, it's interesting to, that during Algeria's history, you know, it was often one of the main examples and models that a lot of other countries used to look to in terms of uh, liberation struggles, anti-colonial struggles. Even during the Third World sort of movement, that people turned to Algeria for leadership. And now it's taken quite a drastic shift. Where it's almost invisible in most uh, in most discussions, or even comparative looking about how societies view um, other countries in the region. Um, in your sort of discussions or initial findings and uh, what you've been researching and learning from others, uh, what are the sort of discussions that you find are happening among Algerians in terms of their – what are their reference points? What are the comparisons that they look to? Uh, how do they see Egypt? Are they looking primarily at Libya? Are, are they thinking about – like, I'm, I'm curious how it's also – how it's seen from within and how they relate to themselves uh, these days anyway uh, to uh, other Middle Eastern countries and what's happening there. <laughs>
1: I think at the, there's obviously at the, there's the, um, at the um, elite level there's one thing. I mean, I assume we're talking more at the sort of ordinary level, yeah. and I should, I should stress that I haven't done a thoroughgoing survey of ethnographic survey. It's based on anecdotal uh, over the months I was I spent in Algeria, which again is but the sort of things I was getting at. You do get the narrative that when it comes to the Arab world, well, they say there's, there's a couple of things. They say, well, we had our Arab Spring in eighty eight we 've been there done that we don 't need to go there again, so all the rest of the world is experienced what we experienced twenty or thirty years ago. Um, you also get um, a view that what is hap- that they see what happens particularly in places like like Libya and Syria and say we don 't want this coming back here but this is something that we we feel quite um, uh, um, we don't want that happening here. And the, and the government plays on this quite a lot. You, you find that in most countries. I mean, Morocco is very similar. It, it, it plays on, what, on, the, on, on, on violence happening elsewhere and say, do you think it's really that bad what's happening here? Do you really complain about lack of democracy when you see what's happening elsewhere in the region? And that has a play. But you get a sense that there isn't, there isn't an enormous interest in what happens elsewhere. There's sympathy for what happens in Syria. Interesting enough, Algeria, the Algerian regime regards itself as relatively close to the Syrians, which is quite unusual. Um, but there isn't quite the same level of engagement, There's a sort of an exhaustion with that. There's an antipathy often at the popular level to the Gulf, particularly Saudi Arabia. A lot of people blame what happened in the 1990s as, as, as being from, imported from, from Saudi Arabia. Um, antipathy, they say that's where the problems came from. Um, but there isn't a huge um, um, interest in terms of, for example, on Syria, the very common view is that Daesh is basically created and run by the, uh, the American CIA and Mossad. Mm. That's a very common view you have of what's happening in, in Syria. Very, very common view. So I don't think there's a, quite the same engagement as there was. It's more, in close, It's more slightly more isolated. Yes. Um, hi.
7: Um, so, hi, is
1: this
7: okay? Um, my name's also Yasmin um my so my father is Algerian. he left um Algiers in the nineties to move to England um and I was just really interested in what you were saying about piety I hadn't really um heard much about that. I still have family who live in Algiers but um I haven't visited since I was very young and when i when I visited Algiers, I did think of it as quite like a modern forward thinking city but Perhaps I was a bit too young to understand completely. So I was just wondering if this idea of piety um, nowadays has shown a shift. Um, You mentioned earlier on in your lecture about Algeria being traditionally quite leftist. And I was wondering if there's been kind of an overall shift to more kind of conservatism or whether it is this case of a personalised idea of of piety. Like, can you be both modern, forward-thinking And very pious, or is it a broad conservatism that we're seeing now?
1: Again, it's a a, a very complicated, and to sort of try and sum up 40 plus million people, there are broad trends towards certain forms of dress and and behavior. That seems to be region wide in terms of um, certain outward aspects of public piety, but in certain sections of a population. But you're also getting movements in, in, in other directions as well, so it's quite complicated. But that is, an, is, is noticeable. You've, you've, you find that in, in Tunisia and Morocco, the growth in those forms of piety. So it's that similar. But what you haven't got with it is a growth in sort of more Islamist political sentiments. And in fact, at certain populations, you've got a lot of antipathy. A very interesting dimension, which again is something I, I'd like to look into more detail, is the lot of hostility people have towards Islamists. And something, you, you find if you go to other countries, people say, like in Morocco, I, 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 I vote for Islamists because they're honest and they work hard, etc. PJD, etc. In Algeria, you get people saying, oh, you, you know, the guy with the beard who runs that, he's not interested, yes, that's what he's interested in. That's what he's interested in, money, money, money. And there was a lot of feeling, but a lot of the Islamists, well, not, uh, the, a lot of those involved in the, some of those involved in the armed groups were, there was a campaign to reintroduce them and reintegrate them into society once the peace um, process was started. And even though the state denies they were given money, clearly they have resources from somewhere and there's a lot of resentment towards that, um, and the feeling that really there is this, they're corrupt. The ministers who went into government have been accused of corruption. So that pushes in a, a different direction. Um, so I think it's complicated, but I think there is, a, there is a pattern. But again, it depends where you're talking. If you go up to Kabylie, it's different again. Or if you go into certain parts of Algiers, it's very different from, from others. <laughs>
0: Sorry. And this lady down here.
8: Yeah. <coughs> I'm the third Yasmin. To Yasmin <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, in Turkish, but um, I'm a student here at the International History Department, the LSE, um, and my question comes from a place of scholarship. Algeria is also not my focus, and I'm wondering. So, your your emphasis is placed, I guess, on creating more scholarship in the post independence period, and you mentioned also at the same time, puzzlingly, that. Uh, Research on colonial Algeria is increasing even though we're moving away in time from that period and to me This is maybe a little bit in tandem with like a lot of post-colonial scholarship That stresses the importance of decolonizing intellectually and I'm wondering I mean, you know people like Partha Chatterjee have written about you know national thoughts in the post-colonial world and How it's almost impossible to sort of escape these colonial intellectual frameworks and how that they might still be sort of at the backbone of our scholarship today and I was wondering, um, do, you th- do you find that that's possible or that it has been happening in uh, post-independence scholarship on Algeria? Do you, th- do you think um, that it's sort of moving to a post-colonial place, also intellectually, but not, on- not only temporally, but also intellectually, or ideologically,
3: I should say?
1: I think generally the passage of time, yes, but again, I don't think it's as quick as it should be. And I think there is this tendency to fall back on the colonial period, not not necessarily the sort of the intellectual processes you've seen elsewhere about we need to go back to the colonial period to properly understand, but it was always the starting point of the colonial period, which my view is maybe the starting point doesn't need to be colonial period. You can see the influence that it comes in. But you, uh, as, uh, was it another Yasmin who was saying earlier on about the, the, the references to the colonial period in, in, in literature? It, it, it's very present. Um, I and mean, I, 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 my personal plea, as you said, I, I found it a bit too overwhelming. You know, it's very strange, as I said, for people to tell me, if you want to study the in the 1990s, you need to read Camus and Fanon, which yeah, they have interesting things to say. I'm not saying they're relevant, but it, it just seems strange when nobody in the ever spoke about Fanon or Camus. But you start from those sort of starting points. And I just found that it became over-determined by that. Uh, In one sense, I think Algeria probably needs to pay less attention to that, whereas other countries probably need to pay more attention to that. But that's my particular take on Algeria.
0: Um, Oh, we have one here.
9: Hello, uh, my name is Selsabil and I want to ask you about the dark question mark that looms over the 80s and 90s, the, the blood-soaked period. So a lot of the people that lived through that and are, are still recovering, um, they're not young anymore, they're not you know, talking about it anymore, but they are raising people who are starting to build communities in Algeria and abroad. Um, and I think what, what's quite alarming is that there's um, only evidence of a a non-truth or an untruth. There's no real account of what happened and and therefore there's no real account of the consequences and then how do we deal with those. Um, And I think a lot of the discussion on research, it feels like we're trying to build a castle on sinking sand because we have so many uh, fragmented identities in Algeria. Um, And as somebody that goes almost every year. Um, I don't have family in the the capital city. I have family all around. Um, And I I go to places that are less affluent, less um, exposed to kind of um, modern ways of living. Um, And the issue is that people find identities in karate. They find identities in American films being played on Arabic channels day and night. They find identities in a Bollywood culture. You know, uh, you can go down a market and uh, find an Algerian dress with an Indian uh, design imprinted on it. You know? People are are looking elsewhere, um, not to their heroic history. Mm. Pretty much the only thing that they all have in common is a sense of apathy. Mm. And um, I wonder how do we move on from that? How do we ever get to know Algeria um, if, if it's all just not true?
1: That's a really good question, a really good point, and, and thank you for the points. I've, you've got access to places that I, I haven't gotten to hear that. Again, it, it does make sense to me that there, things are going in different directions, and the usual pattern you get elsewhere of where people say, well, we need to – Europe is what we need to be, or we need to be more – you know, the Middle East is where we need to go, the old traditional things. People say, well, neither of those are really working. What, 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 do we, what do we find? And, again, the point you make about young people having a very different vision to the older generation and not feeling they can respond to these old, um, uh, these, these old um, assertions of, of identity. And I think that's why the state wants to make it even stronger. They, they want it to be, we have our history, you must believe in this. It's almost like an assertion. But younger people aren't engaging with that. And I, I don't get a sense because we haven't got the sort of research to find out in what sort of directions people are going in what you say I think is very interesting I'm one of the key questions I'm trying to to think about and again I'm not sure I'll come to a definitive answer is what do young people think about the conflict of the 1990s and the fact that you had tens of thousands of people killed but there was no process where this was acknowledged no process where um, uh, people were held account from either side of the divide And my question is, well, what do people make of that today? Where is it gone? There are two schools of thought. One school of thought says, if you bury this stuff, it will come to the surface again. Um, Other people say, well, you know, societies that experience a collective trauma, perhaps they have a way of just dealing with and absorbing (laughs) these horrendous things. When you talk to people who remember it, they always, I, I say to them, you know, you must see these guys wandering around. You know, you saw some radical Islamist who shot members of your family or you saw some, some policeman who killed members of your family. How do you feel? And they say, I don't feel good. But going back is not an option. You hear, I heard that so many times. What? What can we do? What can we do? We can't go back to the 1990s. It's not perfect, but we go on. And we'll see how we go with that. And I think that's that generation. The younger generation, do they sit, talk about this with their parents around the table? Or do their parents say, we can't talk about that? Um, or are they do, are they aware of this? We don't think about it. I just don't know. I don't know. Is it talked about, do you think, by people, what happened in the 1990s? in, in Within the family home, I'm thinking, talking about.
9: I mean, it's a very traumatic process that almost every family yeah. really has, has been... The scale involved.
1: of the violence means that pretty well every family would have been implicated. And
9: it... In my experience, anyway, it's it's very very repressed. It's it's something that ought never to be repeated, um, and it's it's a warning for future genera- generations. And yes, perhaps that's why less and less people are um, finding pe- groups like Daesh um, attractive. Um, but fundamentally, I think that the trauma is also being passed down.
1: This is what I wonder. This is behind my question.
9: The trauma is being passed down. I feel, and it is coming out through this really intense apathy. Um, mm intense um, desire to leave this 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 land that is fundamentally traumatic and and go and and you know it makes that journey across the sea to european Mm. shores so much more attractive um it's 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 something that's not going to disappear in a generation um and i wonder how we we can first of all record that when nobody wants to admit it because it's it's shameful to a degree it's national shame isn't it Um, but also how do we ever administer that that help Uh,
3: Can I just add something here just to when I was doing my PhD I was um, collecting narrative narrative stories from those women who left Algeria and um, I spoke to around 180 women around the world all have kids who are traumatised like mine, like hers I know her dad um, and the majority of those kids want to do, want to study, want to go back to Algeria, but who also want to carry on study, doing something on the 90s. They
1: do. It's
3: interesting. It's interesting. Um. I know at least three or four of them are finishing PhD on something in France, in, uh, in the United States, and uh, even if they're not studying uh, law or social sciences. They really want to do something later, on the 90s, that's uh, something like... It's interesting and, that's, interesting, and those
1: people are well prepared and have the access that somebody like me just wouldn't have.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, I'm afraid our time is pretty well up, so I need to bring this meeting towards a conclusion. I'd like to thank you all for being here and for your many different uh, probing questions. But above all, I'd like to thank Michael both for his uh, fascinating talk and for his readiness to, to range across uh, all the questions which have been asked. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much.